This is The Workflow Show, media production technology stories, discussions about development, deployment, and maintenance of secure media asset management solutions, and one of the tools in your workflow therapy toolbox. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer for Chesapeake Systems. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect at Chesapeake Systems. In the next few episodes of The Workflow Show, we'll discuss cloud technologies with Clinton Foundation Chief Technology Officer Eric White. Eric has more than 25 years of experience in the technology industry. He worked for Microsoft, and he founded Utopia Systems, a pioneering cloud hosting services provider. And previous to his current position at the Clinton Foundation, he was the chief technology officer of CloudScale 365, a hybrid cloud and managed services provider. He has a deep understanding of cloud architecture, networks, and software development, with a focus on the strategic use of innovative technology to create impact and improve the organization's ability to perform its work. We had a great discussion with Eric, so we decided to break our discussion into a few episodes. And today we'll share the first part of our discussion. We'll focus on Eric's background and journey to becoming the CTO of the Clinton Foundation. And then we'll discuss what a CTO does, responsibilities and challenges that accompany that role. Finally, we'll discuss how the goals of the Clinton Foundation and public service and civic engagement affect the needs of the systems and workflows within the company. Before we get into it, I'd like to remind our listeners to subscribe to The Workflow Show because the technology bully can be intimidating. And when you feel intimidated, you need some workflow therapy, right? Also, send your suggestions for topic or guest ideas and general feedback to workflowshow at chessa.com or at workflowshow on Twitter and LinkedIn. And now to our discussion with Eric. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, let's, let's, let's focus on yourself a little bit and your journey. I like to start start discussions with that. You attended the University of Delaware and you, you focused on agricultural business and environmental economics. What prompted the, the switch to go into the, to the IT field? Sure. Well, it's a little bit of a backstory. When I got to University of Delaware, I was undeclared. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And even to this day, I still feel like uh, I haven't really decided exactly what I want to do for a living. I had actually had early exposure to technology when I was, I want to say, eight or nine. Uh, my mother had bought me a Radio Shack TRS-80 color computer All right. and got a book. And it was a book on basic programming. And then when I got to high school, my mother, I owe a lot to her vision, bought a IBM PC compatible and uh, had dual floppy drives, five and a quarter <laughs> floppies. That was like a big deal. All my friends. Oh, yeah. Couple, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Only had single floppy drives. And I had four color uh, CGA, which was like, mm-hmm. wow, uh, instead of mono. <laughs> uh, and yep. so it was just an early exposure to all that. That really led into when I got to college to partially pay my way through school, I got a job at Sears Business System Center. Mm -hmm. So Sears at the time had a chain of business centers where they sold to uh, small, medium and enterprise businesses in their local area. But when I started there, I was the configurator. So we would sell a compact 486 instead of it coming with compact memory and a compact hard drive. Uh, we get it bare bones and put in Kingston memory, Seagate hard drives. Okay, yeah. So you're building you're building these these systems from parts, in, in a sense. Yeah, uh, name at least name brand parts. So really, I've always done technology. And when I went to I got to college, I said, well, I want to learn something different. Not that I knew everything about technology, but I didn't really want to go for an IT degree. 
mm. uh, based on what I felt like I had learned and knew and being in the industry already for a number of years. So uh, a friend of mine decided to go into the ag business program. And I always liked agriculture and kind of feel like even to this day, I'm kind of a closet farmer. We have a lot in common, Eric. <laughs> so not to go into it too deeply, but at the ag school, uh, there was a professor, Dr. McKenzie, who was one of the leading thinkers on environmental economics, kind of one of the more pioneers in the field. So how does managing the environment, environmental disasters affect the economy? What are some of the economic models that could be drawn up to not only address if there's an uh, environmental disaster, what the cost is to clean it up, but what are the opportunity costs? What are the impacts on the area? All that interests me and was really happy to be able to get into that program there. Gotcha. But then my junior year rolled around. I was running out of money effectively. Mm. So I thought, well, let me take a break. So I thought right. I would take a break. Turns out that I had an opportunity to interview at Microsoft and that was directly related to having worked at Sears. Gotcha. So I wound up getting the job and that kind of really set the tone for really being in the technology industry for you know, the last 25, 30, yeah, 30 years. 20, 25, 30 years is what, is what LinkedIn says. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you end up doing at Microsoft then? Well, I started out, oddly enough, in the reseller channel. Okay. So basically on the other side of what I did at Sears. Mm -hmm. So going around to software stores, working on product placement, doing demos. And then that led into, we had a partner channel that we would work with Microsoft partners that later turned into like the Go Microsoft Gold certified partner program of which Chesapeake, of yeah. course, you're a Microsoft mm -hmm. certified Microsoft partner. So I ran that channel for the last year and a half before I left, uh, started it at its inception in the Philadelphia region. Uh, got brought on our first partners, got that whole channel kick kick started, and then you founded a uh, a company called Utopia Systems, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the transition between Microsoft and founding of Utopia was I did professional training and consulting for about seven years. So I okay got a number of sort of like twenty two different Microsoft certifications back then in order to be a Microsoft certified trainer. You had to be certified on that product, and generally that mapped to a course. So once you passed the test, you could teach the course. Started out doing you know, Windows networking and then SQL and Exchange, and mm -hmm. the light bulb went off that with my knowledge of Exchange, you know, with the web hosting industry, really, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, with web hosting, this whole notion of an application service provider, mm -hmm. so kind of predating. SaaS started to bubble up. And there had been some companies that just started to do full-time outsourced exchange mm -hmm. for companies. And I thought, well, maybe I could do that. Okay. Just to define uh, something you guys heard here, SaaS, software as a service, in case anyone is uh, uh, not aware of that acronym. Um, we will be talking about that and other AAS acronyms in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's yeah, many. There's, there's several. Many. But basically, whenever you hear that, it means as a service, meaning that you're only paying for what you use. So Utopia Systems, uh, back in the early 2000s, what is a cloud-hosted service provider doing back then? Sounds like we might be doing a lot of web hosting, things like that. Well, when you would look around, most of it was web hosting, mm -hmm. predominantly. That was really the chrysalis of the 
cloud industry back mm -hmm. then was web hosting right. in various flavors. With a, with the advent of Exchange 2000, this notion of multi-tenancy came started to come into focus. Instead of setting up a siloed system for customer A, another one for customer B, which comes with it a lot of cost, a lot of duplication of efforts, a lot of overhead, this idea of multi-tenancy came along. And it's really one of the cornerstones of scalable hosting these days, right? Absolutely. There's one Google cloud effectively, and you can have multiple virtual clouds within it. We know that there's one Amazon cloud. Yes, multiple locations. Yes, you could have multiple instances within it, but effectively it's one cloud. And when you provision resources, they're shared resources and you right. can do dedicated and they have models for that. But essentially where the cost benefit comes in is to leverage their shared environment. Right. So Microsoft started to build into their products, specifically Exchange, this concept of multi-tenancy. So the ability to spin up multiple customers on a single instance of Exchange that logically were separated from each other. So when you look up a user, you can only see other folks that are in your organization. You can't see other. Yeah. Some of the data might be, in a sense, in the same database on the back end, but effectively from a security access provisioning, it's all separate. Right. It reminds me a little bit of a single family home versus an apartment building, right? Yeah. There are shared resources in plumbing and electrical that all go into the infrastructure there, and you're just in one small portion of the wider building. I love that analogy, Kilberg. Thank you. <laughs> For sure. Just think if you bought an apartment building and lived in it by yourself and you had to heat the whole thing and heat the whole thing and pay for all the water, that would be uh... <laughs> right. cost prohibitive. Yeah. Just a bit, just a bit. So then, you know, let's fast forward a little bit. How did you get to the Clinton Foundation and how, what are some of the differences in, in working in an environment like that versus a for-profit company, for example? Uh, so in 2016, Utopia was acquired by a company called CloudScale365. Uh, okay. I was informally their CTO for a period and then formally their CTO. Uh, they'd made a number of acquisitions to kind of be that full service IT company with not only doing customer support, desktop support, but also supporting your cloud environment, hosting your email, web hosting. So kind of what Utopia was kind of working towards, but just in a, in a broader scale through acquisition. So in working with them, I'll fill in one blank. During the time of Utopia, the Clinton Foundation was a mm. customer and for, for many years. So I had some connection with the Clinton Foundation, supported the Clinton Foundation in many ways. And it just full circle came up that they were looking for a CTO and just paused for a moment and said, well, what would that look like? It would be a different role, something that I've never done uh, up until now. It's one thing to be, you know, run a technology company. It's another thing to be a CTO for, you know, a global foundation yeah. and just did some soul searching and thought, this is the right time in my life to pursue something like this. That's pretty much I went through the process and I was became their next CTO. Oh, that's fantastic. Nice. So um, that's a great segue, Eric, into what does a, C a CTO do? Um, what, you know, what are some of the responsibilities that you carry as a CTO for the organization? Well, as the name and the title implies, I run technology for the whole organization. I have a great team. And 
we're, we're able, we've been able to really accomplish a lot in the last couple of years that I've been there. It's been two and a half years. Uh, I've also in that period brought on what we call operations. So kind of the, the running of the foundation in terms of our offices, the office infrastructure, not just servers. Uh, there's some good uh, synergies there to kind of have all that under under one umbrella, mm. but basically making technology choices, technology policy to put the foundation in a good position, you know, over the next five to five to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. One of the challenges I know just that, that, that a lot of CTOs have is maintaining the current environment and making sure that it's working and, and up to date and everything, but also, you know, reaching out and looking for newer technologies and making sure that you're sort of keeping abreast of all of that. Well, like anything, there's always the break fix part of IT where you're coming in and you know, what's old, what's what what can we live with now? What do we need to address right away? Not long after I arrived, we did a full across-the-board IT risk assessment to discover on the continuum of things, you know, like I said, what we needed to address now, you know, what could wait, kind of come up with a plan for all that. Then moving into, and it's been a trend in IT, instead of having this sort of break-fix mentality of, you know, IT is about systems, it's about technology, kind of waiting until things kind of bubble up or break, you know, how do we get ahead of it? How do we play a more consultative role within the organization? How do we partner with different parts of the organization to kind of get ahead of like what their needs are and being much more consultative in how we how we approach? And I, I think that's then feeds into being more service oriented. Mm -hmm. And that's been a trend in internal IT organizations for, for a while now is just being more service-oriented. Well, I'll tell you another thing that would help give context is the Clinton Foundation, of course, was founded in 2001. So actually, this year is our 20th anniversary, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And the really hallmarks of the foundation are uh, improving economic opportunity, improving public health, and inspiring civic engagement and service, public service. And in and amongst all that, really highlighting the legacy of President Clinton and his time in office and how many of the things he instituted back then were really well ahead of their time and, and still we benefit from today. We, we have like nine initiatives within the foundation and they all operate in many ways autonomous from one another. And it's very entrepreneurial in nature. So you can imagine uh, we have the Clinton Development Initiative, which works to pull together small shareholder farmers in three countries in Africa, uh, Rwanda, Malawi, and Tanzania, uh, to help further educate them on sustainable practices. And I should say we actually can learn as much from them on sustainable practices <laughs> in some ways than, than, than we can teach them. Thank you for saying uh, that, but, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also access to higher quality seed, access to better financing, more favorable financing, many ways forming agribusiness groups where they can knowledge share and share information has been very powerful and injected just an incredible amount of money uh, into their into their communities so helping farmers in africa to early childhood development with our too small to fail initiative and talking about the importance of talking singing and reading to your child before they're 2 years old mm. that we science tells us that uh, a lot of brain development is mostly done uh, by the time you're two years old. And so getting even before we can speak, 
uh, they call it brain scaffolding is a phenomenon that occurs. That's actually something that's very fascinating to me as well. Um, I remember listening to a story on NPR a few years back about uh, how different languages can affect. Uh, it, it was related to uh, languages and inflection and mm. uh, perfect pitch. And I have perfect pitch. It's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> and, you know, it was fascinating to, to, to learn that, uh, that folks that, that have a different language than English, because the language is so focused on inflection and sounds, people that, are, that, that grow up learning those languages tend to have a, a much better chance of, of, of having perfect pitch. Oh, sure. Uh, because yeah. of the brain development that happens that early in life when, yeah. when uh, you know, a person is learning a new language or learning a language. Sure. I'd imagine. There, there's tonal languages, mm -hmm. right? So if you think about uh, Japanese, uh, Mandarin Chinese, mm -hmm. where there's tones. Right. And you could have the same written, uh, written word, if you will, or character. But if, if given a different tone, can have a different meaning. And I always right. feel like that links your left brain and right brain. It's not just, I'm going to speak this word. I'm going to say it exactly this way. Right. Wow. Right. That's really interesting. I, that's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, we should talk more about this offline sometime. <laughs> great. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've tried to call out some of my Delaware <laughs> tonal language. <laughs> For example, you'll find most people here say water. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I've decided I'm not going to say water anymore. I'm going to say water. Yeah. Good. Interesting. <laughs> shifting, the, shifting the focus from one side of Pennsylvania to the other. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, so just to go back to the challenges. So given mm -hmm. we have so many initiatives and, and I could name other CGI University, uh, which is an offshoot of Clinton Global Initiative that engages students in a program every year that they go through a uh, curriculum of uh, learning more about uh, social entrepreneurship, uh, life in public service, and then typically they commit to doing a project that further improves you know, some community or some condition. And so we have all these initiatives. We also have the Clinton Presidential Center, which is President Clinton's library in Little Rock. Mm -hmm. where we've now just surpassed serving our 700,000th meal uh, during COVID. Uh, started out as a partnership with World Central Kitchen, uh, which is Chef Jose Andreas's organization, okay. and partnering with the city of Little Rock to bring meals to underserved communities during COVID in Little Rock. And so that picked up in earnest in early summer and paused a bit towards year end as things looked to be improving. And then once things really heated up again in terms of the COVID crisis towards the end of the year, it was decided to kind of reignite that. Uh, so we're really proud of that work. Great. With all these initiatives, we've spent a lot of time socializing the importance of standardizing on technology, mm. being on common platforms. Mm -hmm. If folks are shopping technology, you know, that IT actually has an ear or a hand in it uh, so that mm -hmm. we can really streamline and operationalize a lot of what we're doing. Whereas in former years, they've really operated independently from one another. So right. uh, much like a large organization that has multiple business units with potentially their own IT leadership, mm. uh, that would be a similar kind of analogy. Uh, so just really spending some time on that. And which is leading into later this year, we're going to be leaning into a broader look at data governance and what data governance looks okay. like for the for the organization. Yeah, speak to that for a second. Talk a little bit about data governance because yeah. that's not a term I'm really uh, familiar with. Sure, it's a broad term. It can mean a lot of things, but most simply, 
uh, what it means is let's, let's take a look at what information we have in the organization. And it's really information. It's very little to do with the technology, but what information do we have? Where is it located? Mm. Where, and mm-hmm. in some cases, not only where, but where is it stored? And that can be, there can be a technical right. component to that. Is it in the cloud? Sure. Is it on premise? Who has access to the data? How are you classifying the data? What's effectively private and which is public? Uh, internally, what's private? What does generally everybody have access to as long as mm. you're an employee of the foundation? But what may only be accessed by executive leadership or be uh, available to be viewed by executive leadership? So if you can think about if you're writing a story, if you're a journalist, the who, what, why, where, when, how, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. think about that in terms of your data. And if you can answer those questions, you're you're somewhat on your way to figuring out what data governance is all about. This is great. And this is where, you know, just what, what we've been talking about in the last few minutes here is really, I think, uh, you know, that's going to. Uh, I, I think have a special place for a lot of our listeners when you talk about uh, you know information security. Number one, uh, we we often see that um, you know media production uh, entities within larger corporations. Uh, you you know we have all these tools in the media industry that we work with, and bridging that gap between the production IT and the corporate IT or the general IT can be a little challenging sometimes because there's a perception there that that the IT generalists are in our way of getting our work done. <laughs> We've talked about this on the show in the past and, and and how beneficial it is to get everyone on the same page and and get buy-in from everyone involved to make sure we all understand what we need, what our expectations are, what we're doing, what ports need to be opened on the firewall, that kind of stuff that really helps to get everybody on the same page and get these, some of these solutions implemented. Yeah, one of the things that was new for me, and it kind of feeds into, I think, one of the questions that would co- you were going to bring up was, well, not only what some of the challenges are, but what maybe are some of the more difficult aspects of like one's growth yeah. in a given field or mm-hmm. growth as a CTO. And coming from running a technology company, where you're really focused on the operations, the customer experience. You know, you're involved in you know legal legal elements and the your your kind of image out there and the media and different things. And just kind of picking your head up from all that as you're leading an IT organization at a foundation to really socializing concepts, you know, amongst other senior leaders and and highlighting the importance of certain initiatives. And it's really the, the people part of technology. And yes, you have to make solid decisions. We're lucky that we have a solid team, and, but really just to be the, the translator and the buffer mm-hmm. uh, between the kind of operational work and the broader senior leadership and the goals of the foundation. Right. Yeah. And that can be challenging. And I, I know it's also, we at Chessa work with um, you know many different types of organizations. We work with those corporate organizations that have a media production department or group. We also work with post-production companies that just do the media production and don't have an overall like, you know, corporate overlord per se. <laughs> and, you know, the mentalities there can be quite a bit different in terms of what, you know, we are allowed to do, what we want to do, where we want to take our our technology, for example. So that's it's interesting that you that you mentioned that. You know, we we often see some sometimes we have um, you know, some of our creative users moving between different organizations. They might go from a corporate organization to a more media production focused organization or vice versa. And it's just important to understand the reasons for those differences, right? For sure. 
Absolutely. That's it for the first part of our discussion with Eric. And the next episode, we'll continue our discussion focusing on cloud technologies. We'll define some of those AAS acronyms we talked about today and discuss how this technology has affected infrastructure and workflow in the media and entertainment industry. Thanks for listening. The Workflow Show is a production of Chesapeake Systems and More Banana Productions. Original music is created and produced by Ben Kilberg. Please subscribe to The Workflow Show and shout out to us at workflowshow at chessa.com or at workflowshow on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Whetstone.